I bring you greetings from across the river. <laughs> My usual visits have been mostly been collaborations with your wonderful Lauren and her fabulous staff. So this morning, it's a joy to be in worship with you all, you all who are the much, much older children at First Universalist. <laughs> sources. What are the sources that nourish and sustain you? What are the sources you turn to in these times when a new world is trying to be born? What sources hold you amidst the uncertainty, confusion, and new possibilities? What a great question. What a challenging and even troubling question. And to expect answers to follow such a question as concisely and unproblematically as questions about which brand of laundry detergent to use is to miss the question entirely. But caught in the tempo of casual, disposable, superficial questions and answers, we become tone deaf to the note sounded by big questions. Big questions that ambush the pottering progress of our mundane preoccupations and ask if we know the touch and feel of life itself. Like Zen koans, unanswerable questions that grab hold of us, bring us out into the wild creativity of life and crack open the truth and beauty enclosed within our hearts. Questions that make us experience the psychic equivalent of those heart-thudding moments when suddenly brought face-to-face -face with danger, adrenaline floods our system, and we shift into a higher reactive gear. When was the last time you were asked such a question that stopped you in your tracks and made you gasp for breath, left you reeling and searching for some adequate reply? So this morning, a question, a Zen koan question from the Mumunguan, case number five, about a monk stuck high up in a tree. But a caveat, and for any romantic idealists among us, adrenaline junkies or extreme sports enthusiasts, an important safety disclaimer. The following talk is rated H for heartbreakingly real, and it features events and action sequences designed and performed actually by ordinary men and women, but living in extraordinary times. These actions and risk and courage are extremely dangerous and attempting them can lead to serious personal and social injury, including sleeplessness, pessimism, nausea, excommunication, heartbreak, loss of bladder control, and yes, even in ex extreme cases, sexual dysfunction. If you experience any of these symptoms, please consult others in this, your beloved community. So listener discretion is advised. <laughs> Mumun Kwan, case number five. Zen master Shang Yen once addressed the assembly of monks saying, it is like a person up a tree high above a precipice. His mouth bites down on the tree branch, 
just barely holding on, since he cannot get a hold with his feet and is unable to pull himself up with his hands. Just at that moment, a person comes beneath the tree and asks him, what is the true meaning and purpose of life? <laughs> if he opens his mouth to answer, he plummets to the ground and loses his life. But if he does not answer, he evades his sacred responsibility and betrays his essential purpose. Tell me, asks Zen Master Shang Yen, at such a time, what would you do? With graphic precision, Master Shang Yen presents the dilemma of life and the hopelessness of our human condition. We think we can go on simply carrying on with life without ever having to be asked the big troubling questions dodging this one here and skirting around that one there, doing everything we can until we are hanging by the skin of our teeth. But right at that moment, a question from a voice comes along and inquires about the genuine meaning and purpose of our very lives. A question we finally can't evade, forcing us to respond and face the consequence. But any response we come up with will cause us to fall as we open our mouth and risk our truth. But not responding keeps us stranded in self-betrayal. We speak and we lose our lives. We don't speak and we lose our lives. There's no way to evade the question. Many, many years ago, one of my Zen teachers found himself at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting one night. During introductions, the facilitator asked, are there any other alcoholics here tonight? And without thinking, he answered, yes. At the time, he couldn't grasp if the question was a matter of life and death. He only vaguely acknowledged that there were real human lives by, affected by his alcoholism. I didn't realize that it would turn my world upside down, he later said. I was about to learn that answering it truthfully meant that I was about to lose a life I had become so comfortable with, even loved in a perverse way. It was a life of holding on through deception and talking my way around it so well that even I believed the lies. What changed this question from an intellectual consideration about addiction and alcoholism to one with all the force of life and death? I found myself hanging from a branch by the skin of my teeth and no longer able to hold on and falling. Maybe you know something about holding on. I mean, desperately holding on by the skin of your teeth. Holding on to a troubled relationship or job. 
holding on to this seductively simple assumption that the best answer to our social ills lies in our criminal justice system. And so if we could only reform those police, holding on amid frustration, disappointment, exhaustion, and impossible odds, holding on and sidestepping troublesome questions without answers before the overwhelming challenge of living in this beautiful and all too fragile world. Maybe you know something of holding on. The convergence of recent events suggests that the world itself may be dangling at the opening decades of this third millennium, desperately holding on amidst the repeated patterns of half-truths, deceptions, heartbreaking injuries that cheapen our hope and betray the promise that things can be better. It's almost as if the dots connect themselves. On May 2nd, just two years ago, after nightfall near the summit of Mauna Loa in Hawaii, carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere reached 400 parts per million for the first time in at least 800,000 years. This threshold represents a compelling symbol of the growing humid impact on the Earth's climate. Each Celsius degree of temperature increase means one more ice-free week of summer waters in the Hudson Bay. And we have all seen the photos of polar bears, which rely on travel onto the ice to hunt for seals. Polar bears now holding on to as much ice as they can find to stave off starvation in summer and fall. And as the onset of winter gets delayed, the increasing desperation and nutritional stress means females are likely to have smaller litters with even fewer surviving to adulthood. There's no better way to destroy a population than to decimate its youth. So she's holding on as best as she can. And so are the hopes of many who are looking to the International Climate Conference in Paris this November, December, where for the first time in over 20 long, drown-out years of UN negotiations, a binding and universal agreement from all the nations of the world hangs precariously in the balance. Maybe the Earth and its creatures know something about holding on. Just two years ago, Save the Children raised concern that more than two million children trapped in Syria were being drawn ever more into the violence. Boys were being used by armed groups as porters, runners, and human shields. Girls were being married off early to protect them from the threat of sexual violence. This past fall, reports from Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International began to detail accounts of the Islamic State and its infrastructure of violence, slavery, and trading of hundreds of young women and girls from the Yazidi and other religious minority groups. And repeatedly, shockingly, the Islamic State leadership 
emphasized a radical theology not only to justify its violence, but to elevate such violence against girls as spiritually beneficial, even virtuous. In Syria and Iraq, in places of modern conflict where one adversary so often morphs into another, Yazidi girls are struggling to hold on. Maybe the children of this world know something about holding on. Stuck high in a tree above a precipice, fearful and exhausted by fear and violence, the overworked arguments and political half-truths, our jaws clenched and teeth biting into the branch, we may all be holding on as best as we can. But a question comes to us, a dangerous and unrelenting question from the ground up, refusing to let us look away or hang around in the ambivalence of our abstractions, contradictions, and moral agnosticism. A question comes to us from the ground of life itself, a penetrating question that holds our downfall. At that time, says Master Shang Yan, if he opens his mouth to answer, he plummets to the ground and loses his life. But if he doesn't answer, he evades his sacred responsibility and betrays himself. Tell me, at such a time, what would you do? Mohammed Bouazizi spent his whole life on a dusty, narrow street in Tunisia, in a tiny three-room house with a concrete patio where his mother hung the laundry and the red chilies to dry. By the time Mr. Bouazizi was 26, his work as a fruit vendor earned him just enough money to feed his mother, uncle, and five brothers and sisters at home. He dreamed about owning a van. But on that fateful morning in Tunisia, when police tried to confiscate his fruit unless he paid the usual bribe, and then beat him when he tried to get back his apples, he walked to the governor's office and demanded an audience and was refused. Sometime around noon, in front of the governor's high gate, he drenched himself in paint thinner and lit himself on fire. Setting off an unimaginable swirl of event, events in which Tunisians rose up to topple a 23-year dictatorship, demanding radical change in their government, a swirl of events that rippled beyond Tunisia into Egypt, Libya, Yemen, Bahrain, Syria, a seemingly routine confrontation that set off a revolution yet to be determined. If he opens his mouth, he plummets to the ground and loses his life. 
If he doesn't answer, he evades his sacred responsibility and betrays himself. Tell me, at such a time, what would you do? Muhammad Bouazizi opened his mouth. The young people of Arab Spring opened their mouth and fell into the question that rose from the groundswell of life itself, the question of how political order must finally derive its legitimacy from genuine citizenship itself. On September 14th, September 17th, four years ago, in Zuccotti Park in New York's Wall Street Financial District, you know that an occupation took place to protest corporate influence on democracy, the lack of consequences for those who brought about the global economic crisis, and the appalling growing disparity in wealth. We are the 99% became the slogan, questioning the wealth gap between America's wealthy elite and its overall citizenry. Lawrence Lessig, who teaches law at Harvard and is a well-known campaign finance reform advocate, Lawrence left the classroom this past midterm election year to confront the reality of down-and-dirty politics and try to replace money interests with public interest. Reflecting on his experience, Lessig pointed to the 2012 Princeton study, the largest empirical study to date of actual policy decisions made by our government. The study compared actual policy decisions to what the economic elite care about, what organized interest groups care about, and finally, what average voters care about. Here's what the data confirmed. As the percentage of economic elites who support an idea goes up, the probability of it passing also goes up. As organized interest groups care about something goes up, the probability of it passing also goes up. But as the percentage of average voters who care about something grows, it has no statistical significance whatsoever on the probability of it passing. Lessig says, if we can go from 0% of average voters caring about something to 100% of them caring, and it doesn't change the probability of it actually being enacted, the graph shows a flat line. Our democracy is flat-lined. And as spending by candidates and super PACs are projected to more than double what Obama and Romney each spent in 2012, what happens to the 99% of us? If you open your mouth to answer, you plummet to the ground and lose your life. If you don't answer, you evade your sacred responsibility and betray yourself. 
Tell me, at such a time when a question comes along and burns a hole right into your heart, what will you do? Such questions are bursting from the groundswell of the world today and pull at us as we try to hold on. Such questions that the mystic and poet David White asks in his poem, Self-Portrait. It doesn't interest me if there is one God or many gods. I want to know if you belong or feel abandoned if you know despair or can see it in others. I want to know if you are prepared to live in the world with its harsh need to change you. If you can look back with firm eyes saying, this is where I stand. I want to know if you know how to melt into that fierce heat of living, falling toward the center of your longing. I want to know if you're willing to live day by day with the consequence of love and the bitter, unwanted passion of your sure defeat. I have heard in that fierce embrace, even the gods speak of God. Somewhere, High up in that verticality, holding on with the skin of our teeth, trying to keep up with the Joneses and make it through this alive, a question comes along that pulls at our hearts and asks if we are willing to risk the weight of our truth and purpose, to fall into that question with all the fear it holds, all the doubt, uncertainty, and the sure defeat to fall into our fears until fear no longer holds us captive to its small and parsimonious banality, to fall and entrust ourselves to that primordial force of gravity itself that sparked the cosmos into existence, that holds the planets in orbit and shapes the dialogue of the constellations. Is spirituality some kind of up, up, and away activity? Or is it a down, down, and into foundational truths way of being? Is not falling as much our birthright as climbing? Let me remind you of something tiny but outrageously true about falling. That as we are falling towards the earth, the earth, attracted by our smaller, but nonetheless entirely real gravitational force, rises to meet the weight of our being. The question that makes us fall is also the opening through which the ground itself rises to meet us. The question that asks us to fall becomes the very opening through which the source of life itself 
reaches out to meet us. And finally, in that hard and unembellished embrace, we touch life itself. And as contradictory as it sounds, we come alive. Of course, you have all heard this before. Wasn't it there in your childhood? Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again. In this nursery rhyme rests our story. The great fall is our journey, our evolution into our living truth and purpose. We fall into our questions, and as dancer Rebecca Lamerson says it, our falling is the way we shatter into the truth that we are not our shells. We were never our shells, and we no longer see anything at face value, but at heart value. And all the king's horses and all the king's men, all the powers of the way things are and ever shall be, can't do anything to put us back the way we were. For we are wondrously unfixable, wholly beyond any repair. Because once you crack wide open in that heartbreaking embrace, you see your glorious truth and purpose shining bright yellow in the light of a new creation. Gathered in this moment of beloved community and this sacrament of rending our hearts unabashedly open, can you hear the question rising from the ground? At such a time, what will you do? Let go. Let go and fall into the question that is your life. And together, we can listen for that fierce embrace that shakes the ground and can reshape the topography of everything. May it be so. Amen.